My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Jamie Keach. And today I had the chance to sit down with a gentleman who is perhaps the most prolific, and if not the most, certainly one of the most prolific explorers and mind discoverers in Canadian history and maybe maybe even world history. He has been involved and often responsible for dozens of discoveries all over the world, many of which went on to become profitable mines. And this gentleman is none other than Ron Nedelinsky. He is a geologist. He is a prospector. And he's based here in Vancouver. And he was gracious enough to spend a little bit of time sitting down with me this week talking about what he's working on today, talking about his 50-plus years of experience in the industry we discuss how Ron started his career as a geological field assistant to the Geological Survey in Saskatchewan, Canada, and then all the steps in between to being the founder and the CEO and the chairman of multiple companies. Today, Ron is the CEO and the founder of a company called Mass Gold Corp., and he is back to his roots. They are exploring for gold in Saskatchewan, a part of the world that Ron knows very, very well. And we get into why a gentleman who could choose a project anywhere in the world has chosen to focus there. This was a great conversation for me. Uh, It's very rare that I, or for that matter, anyone gets the chance to sit down with someone with this level of experience, both in terms of the time he's spent in the industry, but as well as the the depth that he's gone to. Someone who's been a CEO, someone who's been a field geologist, who's spent God knows how many months of his life in a tent in the middle of nowhere. Um, it was really valuable for me to understand how exploration has changed over the last half century and you know some of the techniques that Ron learned uh, and employed while coming up that perhaps we are undervaluing today and that he would like to see see a reemergence in the industry, such as grassroots prospecting. For anyone who is really interested in how these discoveries are actually made, how some of the biggest and best mines currently providing the metals we use today were discovered, this is the podcast for you. So, without further ado, let me please introduce Ron Nedelinsky from Mass Gold Corp. Mr. Ron Nedelinsky, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. So, we are sitting here in the office of your new-ish company, uh, Mass Gold, and we're in downtown Vancouver. And we've been talking for a few weeks about doing this interview I'm excited to sit down today. Um, You are one of Canada's most successful geologists and and maybe prospector is a better word for that. And we can talk a bit about that too. And I'm excited today because 
we're going to get a chance to talk about exploration in both Canada and other places of the world, how that's evolved over the last several decades, and what people are doing today to, to find new deposits and, and all the deposits you've been involved in finding. So thanks for, for joining me. Thank you. So to start off, um, if I were to meet you at a party and I would say, Ron, what do you do for a living? How would you answer that question? I would probably say I'm a geologist. Sometimes I might say I'm a prospector, depending on the group. Yeah. Do you, sorry. And the difference, the difference to me is a geologist actually writes technical reports and does a lot of technical <clears throat> things. A prospector just goes and finds things. And I found that over time I enjoyed finding things much more than writing up the reports of looking for things. <laughs> so you were you were more keen to be out in the field than doing office work back here in Vancouver. Yes, I, you know, prospecting also is office work in a sense that one can do research and compilations and try to find opportunities. Like a bunch of my early money was actually made staking mineral claims and selling them in, a, in staking rushes. It was a seed capital for many people in my business. And it kept uh, kept our consulting business alive over bad times. So I think for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with this sort of uh, nomenclature, what is the primary goal of a prospector? It is to find something. It's to find, it's, they're treasure hunters. And uh, you know, your traditional prospectors, unfortunately, have a tenacity to when they find things and get payday, they end up either destroying their lives or spend, or <laughs> getting drunk until the money's gone and then have to go and do it again. So this is... So I haven't tried to be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like the, the stereotypical um, image of a, of a Yukon gold rush or a California gold rush prospector that makes a few bucks and then heads off to the saloon and then is uh, in some form of blackout for the next several weeks until they have to go back into the field and repeat? Well, yes, and I, a lot of the prospectors I've known, the traditional ones, they would stay sought, drunk all winter, till, and they would be out of money by springtime, and they'd have to go back to work. <laughs> so I think it's worth discussing um, the role that prospecting has in the mineral exploration industry as opposed to more um, more not traditional but perhaps formalized geology and exploration and and how those two things play together uh, and perhaps are are reliant on one another for success okay I, I still find and if you look carefully at discoveries in Canada there is still a significant portion of discoveries that are traditional prospect based and they can be prospector based on guy breaking rocks walking through the woods or they can also be prospect based by people doing geochemistry and doing other follow-up to uh, traditional way methods without without getting into the formal geology now one one of the things i found that really finally cured, cured me, I guess, of being a, a geologist is that we'd spend a lot of time and effort working up the geology of, a pl of an area 
mapping it carefully, finding the structures, finding the fold closures, finding all those things. All those things are extremely useful. However, if you do that on in an area that has no, no prospect, it's just a pretty map that goes on a wall someplace. So I, I feel that the first thing that should be found is you should find some mineralization, and then you use your all your ge geological and geophysical and geochemical skills. So would you say that the geology behind it is really the science behind why that mineralization is there and the explanation behind that? Yes, I, I think you could say that, uh, you know. But you look at uh, northern Canada as an example. It's a huge area, and a person on feet can only cover a certain amount. Mm -hmm. Not very much ground can be covered. But if I look at traditionally, if you spend a lot of money and efforts doing a very good geology and you, you basically have this in an area that has no mineral prospects it tends to be a total waste of money what would you say to people that would say today that there are that prospecting is less easy because much of the low hanging fruit has been discovered and they're searching uh, for deposits which are undercover. So for non-geological listeners, that would typically mean something that doesn't have an outcrop showing on surface where you need to drill or, or maybe auger to get uh, the data required to find that discovery. I would, uh, I would say if you look at a cost differential of doing a sophisticated airborne survey, which gets you a all kinds of targets, geophysical targets, that cost you a huge amount of money to drill to see if there's anything there, it's worthwhile trying to find that remaining low-hanging fruit, which is uh, basically the prospect discovery. What are the tools of the trade for a prospector? If you're not using airborne geophysics, um, what is it that you do utilize, and what are the things that are most cost-effective in terms of the value they create? Okay, I, you know, I can use an example. The tools of a prospector are basically the ge geological tools, such as a rock hammer, a shovel, or a pick, a hand lens, and a gold pan. Now, you can do more sophisticated geochemistry, which is what we're all doing, including prospectors, but it's, it's, it's just a step up from a gold pan. A gold pan is a way of concentrating heavy minerals and seeing uh, the presence of gold in soils or in a, in a stream. So there's, there's no difference between what that prospector does, but since you know, we couldn't find enough experienced prospectors to do this work with a gold pan or all these so we ended up doing a short circuit, which was grid geochemistry. And what changed, uh, what changed, really changed gold exploration from my perspective, was the advent of affordable gold assays for soil geochemistry. That uh, that opened up 
the ability to do very extensive sampling programs to identify targets. And then we got a little more sophisticated, and a lot of this is prospecting-oriented. You know, you can go to places like Scandinavia where they use dogs to prospect. They have dogs that sniff out sulfide-bearing boulders. Really? Yes. That's... And... And there are techniques of uh, overburdened drilling with basic equipment called whacker drills or percussion drills. Yeah. And this is all within total tools availability of a prospector. Like like experienced prospectors used to use small diamond drills. They had... Are these like backpack-style drills that they can carry in themselves? Yeah. They can carry in themselves. Like I, in my early career there, I was looking after people running what they called winky drills. Yep. And uh, we could drill down to uh, several hundred feet with a winky drill and move it into hundred, you know, several kilometers inland from the well, lake where we landed. And this is just something you put on your back and... Well, you, you can carry it. And I think the biggest piece is, heaviest piece takes two people. So would you say that, I guess, the art of prospecting is one that the geological community has started to lose over the last several decades? Well, I think it it has in the sense that people have tried to convince us all that uh, technology is more sophisticated and that technology is better. But, uh, you know, I have drilled, I don't know how many airborne geophysical anomalies without a I don't think I've ever had a discovery with an airborne geophysical anomaly. <laughs> now, to put that into context, how many discoveries have you had in general? Direct, indirect, uh, probably 20 or 30. I don't know. It depends on what we call a discovery. I think you... I used to like to go out and... I like to go into an area and I'd like to come back with mineralization every day. You know, but that all doesn't make discoveries, but pattern of mineralization in an area makes makes it makes leads you to a discovery and you know I found that in my career and working in Saskatchewan in the inland we ended up there was some legendary well-known prospectors one was Eric and he he basically trained uh, natives First Nations people Indian and Métis to be prospectors. Sorry, this was Eric who? Eric uh, just got this left, left me for a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll call him Eric for now. So yeah. he trained up First Nations to prospect. That's right. And uh, But a lot of these guys were natural prospectors because, first of all, they're comfortable in the bush. You don't have to train a native how to get home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know when we first started working with some of these fellows they were much more skilled than I thought and they were you know they're not necessarily open about their skills in what regards what were they particularly good at well I mean we used to train them very quickly to do any kind of ground geophysical surveys geochemistry you name it and is this a factor of knowing the landscape very well being able to move quickly and efficiently being able to cut line and and basically all, all these walk, skills? Yes. I, you know, it's all the skills of being bush-capable where 
you take me as an urban kid that showed up there, I'm lucky uh, I'm still around probably. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, this takes me uh, to what my next question was going to be. And, you know, I'd like to take a step back and, and ask you, how do you end up in geology? How do you end up as a prospector? Because you didn't grow up uh, in the forests of British Columbia or in the mountains of British Columbia. Can you take us back to what brought you into this field in the first place? Yes, it was a choice of elimination, I guess, when I <laughs> went into high school. I basically got graduated out of high school in Edmonton. I had no clue what I wanted to be. I went and took one of these aptitude tests that you, universities used to offer, mm-hmm. and it came back as a straight line that said I could be a medical doctor, and I could be this, I could be that, and I had all this. Well, the sight of blood makes me gag. I still never, I never took a zoology course in my life because I, had a, I would have had to cut up that animal. Mm-hmm. I, I took botany. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm sitting there saying, okay. And I looked at all the sciences, and the one that we had no knowledge in in that my period of going to high school was geology. There was no training or no period of spent in anywhere in your high school, uh, junior high school career that talked about rocks and geology and landforms and how the world comes about. So I, you know, I, I, I was pretty big, so I, I kind of looked at this. I went, visited uh, the University of Alberta in Edmonton, had a Dr. Gord Williams. He explained to me a little bit about what geology was, and sounded ah, that's okay. And uh, so I took that as a first year option, mm-hmm. as my one of my sciences. And I was in the geology lab. For some reason, uh, the, the TA of that lab was a PhD student from Saskatchewan that worked for the Saskatchewan government as a geological mapper running uh, field programs and lo and behold they offered me a job from Edmonton and this was your first year of university first year of university you've got a job in Saskatchewan working for the geological survey of Saskatchewan mapping mapping or uh, I was carrying the rocks for these boys (laughs) and running (laughs) running the line so watching them map I guess at this point learning how we had three three juniors and a a party chief and a senior geologist Mm mm-hmm and basically they worked every day when they worked. The juniors had their day, one day which they weren't working with a geologist where they were, they were in charge of cooking. So you had to cook breakfast and dinner and supper. So let's, uh, to place us for this sort of summer job, where, where were you? Were you in Saskatchewan? Were you half an hour from a town? Were you, what was, what was the environment like? Well, the, my first year was very fortunate. We were... We were a uh, short distance out of Flin Flon, Manitoba. Yep. Which is on the boundary border. And uh, we were working uh, an area called the Sturgeon Weir River, which is one of the major rivers into that part of the country. And we were camped on an island, uh, a short canoe haul away from where the highway was. And uh, we got into town a fair bit. And I, I remember I kind of showed up after a 24-hour bus ride from Edmonton to Flin Flon, got picked up by the senior geologist, threw my pack into the bag, 
or my bag into the truck, followed him. Next thing I knew, I had a beer in my hand at 18, sitting in Manitoba, which was, you know, we were 21-year-old drinkers then, those mm -hmm. days. And that was the start of my summer. So I said, hey, this geology is not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Except when we went out working and first traverse I ever did, you, 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 it's different than walking a few miles in the bush along a trail. Yeah. We go cross country through all the scrub and the crap. And we, run a, we run straight lines. And so can you explain to people what a traverse is who, who aren't familiar with that Traverse term? is basically we take a compass bearing and keep track of our paces because that's how we actually map those. Those government maps are made. Yep. And we, we, we structure it so we used to go out maybe two, three miles, half a mile across and come back across the grain of the country. Right. And you're, you're going, generally you go across the grain of the country because that shows you the maximum amount of geology for your traverse. And so as you're walking along these, these several miles, you're noting the outcrops on a piece of paper in front of you and saying, the, the this is here. Is, he's, he's basically taking rock samples. And they usually take the samples on the way out because they might not see the same rock coming back. Right. <laughs> so you're carrying, and at the end of the day, I might have 70 pounds of, of rock in my back. 80 pounds. So someone like me, uh, and I had a job similar to this when I first started out, but we had GPSs. Oh, yeah, um, what did you do before GPS? Because you're not just marking your spot on the map and going to plug it into the we computer had, when you get home. We basically had air photos, <clears throat> which we plotted our route on. And uh, we had the orientation of our compass bearings and the number of paces. We you, That's our distance and... And so you were counting out paces as you went along to yeah. and following along in the photo and yeah, or I, the geologist would follow along on the photo because he'd wander around, but you were the responsible for keeping the line so he knew where the line was. So this is how most of Canada got mapped, uh, got mapped and North America in general, and yeah. probably most of the world in general geologically. Yeah, and you know I look at it and I say, well, you know, with a GPS, <laughs> I could have done four times the amount of work. Or ten times the amount of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and with less people and faster, yeah. and because you know we really had a huge effort was made on knowing where you are. With the GPS, you, you pe people knew where they, know where they are every minute, every step. Ron, how old are you today? I'm seventy six. Seventy six. So you would have been somewhere around eighteen at this point. You were mm -hmm. saying. So what what year was that in? 63. 63. So what I find really interesting about this is, you know, even though it's 40, 50 years later, you see the same parallels of people coming into this sort of work. I can, I can speak from my own experience. Mm -hmm. I went to high school in Ontario. I never had a geologist, ge geologically focused course whatsoever. I didn't even know that what a geologist was, to be honest. And when I was 17, I was trying to figure out where to take a university. And my guidance counselor at school said, oh, I've got a friend who's a geologist. He gets to go down to Brazil. He gets to go run around in the jungle and pick up rocks. And he's camping half the time. And I said, oh, you know, that sounds a lot better than a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I ended up going into mining engineering and okay. following that. And this is something you see across the industry, uh, especially geology, People often get into it because they, they love the outdoors, because they love um, travel, because they mm -hmm. love being out in these really 
special parts of the world that you often don't get to see otherwise. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, I look at the country side, you know, you know, I'm, you know, the first thing we did was we had to learn to send up, set up the camp, set up the tents. I mean, I didn't even know how to use a bloody axe. So you didn't grow up camping and no, all this? I, I was pretty urban. I was an urban kind of kid. I worked on the railroads as a kid, as a high school student. So what was your, so you, you get hired by the government of Saskatchewan, you're out in the middle of nowhere past Flin Flon. What was your, I mean, I assume you were out there for four months that summer or so, and what was yeah. your perception coming back? Were you uh, Well, it was, I, I, I almost quit the first week because the first traverses we took, they ended up being about 12 miles because the beaver dams had blocked <laughs> our pass, and I'd be walking up to my neck in muskegs trying to get across these things, and I'm carrying all these rocks, and I'm saying, this is worse than that. I'm not going to go back to the railroad. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you, I mean, you've spent decades and decades now in geology. When, when did that turning point occur that you, were, you fell in love with it? Well, it was, it was kind of, I actually liked, when, when the camping was finished, I actually liked it. <laughs> I liked living out there in the wilderness. And I, you know, with limited number of people, and, and I liked uh, I liked this sort of stuff where we were we were mapping, but we were also looking for things. We were, you know, and I actually uh, my first year there, partly because I was tired, and I wanted to slow down the damn geologist in front of me. <laughs> it was a they were the kind of guys that were mus- muscular muscular city you know they they worked out after they got home from a long day's bush work in the camp in the camp you know they'd have weights and all this stuff and I'm sitting there saying oh, I just want to <laughs> <laughs> but to slow them down I noticed some unusual colors in one of the rocks on that I was walking over and I I basically found the first barrel crystals in that area of Saskatchewan Really? In pegmatites, yeah. So, so, you know, I guess that w- was just observation. Was it... Did you, ha- did you find that you had an eye for this sort of um, picking up these details and maybe more of this sort of economic focus early on as opposed to someone that would spend their full career at a geological survey and was more focused in the pure geology and the mapping? Well, I, you know, I, I started down possibility of a route. I finished off all my coursework a couple of times on a PhD courses, but in doing research type geology. But I found once I got the satisfactory answer to myself, I wasn't that interested in the formal writing up of the of the work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I found that the first year that I I worked two years with the government then the third year, I actually went and worked for a mining company up in the Northwest Territories. Uh, it was a company called Fort Reliance Minerals, uh, Redstone Minerals. It was uh, actually companies that were still controlled by 
a legend in our business, a guy called Tara, Tara Lindsay. Okay, so I, I don't know who that is. Well, he's probably, he's, he's, he founded Falconbridge. Okay, I should know who that is. Yeah, you know, he's probably one of the most successful people in that whole industry. And I found uh, any time that I looked at a property that Thera Lindsay liked, I like it. <laughs> it actually is probably one of the reasons that the company we took, Hammond Reef, which became Brett Resources' success, it was a Thera Lindsay property from the 30s. And was he a geologist as well by training? Yeah. Yep. He was a geologist. So what were you doing up in the Northwest Territories? Were you doing exploration geology or were you a mine geologist? And no, uh, we were exploration geologists. We, I learned another lesson. Of, showed up there in June, early June. Hung around Yellowknife for a few days and enjoying the bars, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of what we do in geology. Spring break up and winter freeze up but and then we got into this airplane and they dropped me up on a lake that's fairly well known now because of the diamond discoveries but it was called Point Lake up in Barrens they unloaded the uh, the, the single otter and I had a, a couple prospectors with me there was old time guys that they were supposed to set up the camp and show me how to set up shack tents and things yep. and it was Myself and another green geologist. Lo and behold, <laughs> it was uh, got dumped in the, this ice minus thirty below. There was an old tent, storage tent that somebody left on the shore right where we got dropped off. Mm-hmm. So we crawled over there with our new fancy sleeping bags, slept at thirty below, <laughs> and started setting up camp. And the uh, first thing I found out was, oh, prospectors, they were, they were no help. I thought when this Gordy guy was, it was one of the guys, mm-hmm. he had a bottle that said O.P. Rum on it, I, in which he drank on the flight up. And I kind of dismissed, I, that can't be rum, that's just probably home brew of some sort. It was O.P. Rum. <laughs> so he was drinking a full bottle of rum. On the just way. Just on the way in. Um, you so you set up in a shack there. Um, we set up our camp, and then I learned a little bit of like I'm not much of a carpenter. Mm-hmm. We had pieces that were supposed to be on the floor and this roof, and pieces in the roof that ended up on the floor. But it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> you survived and, and lived to tell the tale. And yeah, we survived. And I spent four months that year before I never seeing a town, never seeing anything. So you didn't leave the field for the entirety of that summer? That's right. I went all the way up to the Arctic coast, worked with small clues. There was five or six of us, and so occasionally we would camp with another group of prospecting geologists, so it might be eight or ten people around. And that was it. So did you ever see a shower or anything like no. that for the whole summer? <laughs> no. Never had a haircut, seen a shower. I, show, I showed up back and or uh, Yellowknife got into the Gold Range Hotel I was fascinated with light switches and I never had you know and I was sitting there I was you know you get what they call bushed yeah well I you know I think I've been seriously bushed a few times and is this like almost like a culture shock of being reintegrated into society and 
having to having to intermingle yeah. with your fellow humans again after so long? Well, yeah, it's a little strange. <laughs> you know, thinking about it now, uh, I've been in lots of places like that, but we always have had a sat phone, for example, and, yeah. and often we've had internet. You know, what are the implications in a place like that if you break an ankle or, or even seriously sprain an ankle? Well, you're in a lot of the places I've been in, especially in the high Arctic, and you're, you're dead because quite often we worked alone. So you didn't even have a team player with you. Mm-hmm. We had no radios that worked. Like the main radio we had at camp, and there used to be little blue boxes called Humboldt's one and a half volt mm-hmm. before the single side bands. Well, you never got through. You might get through once a month on your radio call. Once a month. <laughs> and is that to uh, a plane that happens to be flying no, overhead? No, that, that would be all the way. It would, the signal would bounce and you would get picked up. And... Because what we had to do was make sure that our grocery orders and our orders for the next service flight every couple of weeks were were in the plane that left, because you never you could never transmit any changes. Yeah. Oh, I see. So you gave the list for the next next drop off. So how so a plane came once a month, once every two months, every two off. weeks or so. I okay. think we used to get a service flight. So, I want to start talking now about. When you started working for yourself and putting together your own deals, your own projects, um, and when you really got focused on making discoveries, and, and maybe we should first say, what brought you into the public market side of things? When did you go from being a pure technical geologist out in the bush, on the ground, four months at a time, to yeah, was... putting together companies? Okay, basically, I... I had a consulting business, which I grew with and ended up with partners called Tega Consultants. Mm-hmm. It shut down about two years ago or three years ago. And I got out of it reasonably early. But what really happened with that was we were we had a, probably 80 people working for us or up to 100 people working in the summers because I got very fortunate with that particular consulting company. We happened to be next door to Key Lake when a discovery was announced prematurely by the uh, one of the U.S. partners. Okay. And uh, we were in the staking rush, and I probably made a... I staked millions of acres of land before the staking rush finished. And is, was this just you, or you deployed your team out to go? Well, and we had prospectors working for us. Yeah. We had. We were actually with a gentleman called Murray Pike and his group, which is Complex Resources, which became very successful in the oil patch. Uh, we had a joint venture to, to explore in northern Saskatchewan, and we were sitting there sharing about a $30,000 contract between two consulting firms. Neither of us were going to survive my, another year of this stuff. Yeah, and uh, we happened to—I happened to be in Larange when the mine recorder's office when this discovery got announced. So we were staking the next morning. You were physically in the office. Yeah, and I just, <laughs> <laughs> the guy got the phone call on this discovery. So I was—we were there, and the third party showed up the next morning when I was at a place called Otter Lake because I was a little closer and cheaper mm-hmm. to fly out of, picking up a plane and some more people. 
and then another party uh, called uh, Bill McNeil, ex ex Bush pilot, showed up with one one native, mm-hmm. <laughs> one axe, but we knew he was a good promoter and salesman, so he we said okay we're all in bed together. So, so what, let's walk us through this. So you're in the office. You hear about this discovery. You yeah. run back to the office, mobilize your team, and yeah. well, you're I mean, out, you know, ready to fly out the next morning? Yeah. And we had, I had a crew out there with about seven, six or seven people already and a small airplane. So let's, um, for people who ha- aren't familiar with this, sort of explain what a staking rush is. So we a, a deposit, or not a deposit, rather, a discovery's been identified. That means there's, was, I assume it was gold they were looking for no, there. that was uranium. Uranium. So that was Key Lake. Okay, okay, yeah. So they found uranium. What is the reaction in the geological community to this? And what, what did you guys do, the natural reaction? Well, the natural reaction was pick up the maps and get, get as much tie on land as we could afford. And you want to be able to tie up as much property around this because of the potential of that deposit or a yeah. potential deposit to spill yeah. into that property. Yeah, we, we, we're, we're, we're working 40, 50 miles south of there, and we were finding uranium. So we knew they were looking for uranium. We knew the people. Mm-hmm. And, but we didn't know if it was associated with the uh, unconformity, which goes east-west, or the structures that were going northeast across it. Yeah. So we went both directions. We went every direction we could, as much land as we could. And I, what I would do is I would end up being the last guy. We, we, once we got a core piece of land, a bunch of land, the first deal we did, we actually sold for cash out, outright just to finance us. And after that, we kept uh, royalties and we kept uh, the build ability to look after the work i see so you so were getting contracted we, then yeah, we had two or three years worth of built-in contract work when that was finished so at this point you go from being a pure consulting company to being a company that owns properties acquires properties options them out uh probably often maintains a portion or a royalty or yeah. something on those properties so you're now in the capital markets game to a degree to a, de- to a degree but we're more or less we're still pretty pure in the sense that we weren't doing our own companies mm-hmm. and uh, I was quite happy in the uranium field as a <coughs> large c- contractor you know we had a then moratoriums in this uranium business got to me a couple times you know one of the moratoriums we got was the first moratorium in British Columbia and can you explain what the moratoriums in the uranium the, business were basically they were saying you, you shall not look for uranium. And this was the Canadian government dictating that, or provincial governments? Provincial governments. It was in B.C., it was a British Columbia. Socreds actually did it. Who is this? The Social Credit Party. Ah, okay. It wasn't the left wing as I would normally whine and whine and bitch about that <laughs> shut me down. It was... And, that was we had a project in my consulting business with uh, Denison. Yep, we'd put together in BC, and we had the people hired, trucks purchased. And we were out ready for a major program. Plus, we got our first option payment check. We also got a phone call with the option came at about the same time as the option payment check, saying, "Oh, by the way, your checks 
You should receive your check. Don't cash it. It's been, it's been suspended, halted. <laughs> so that, that was hard. We had to find uh, enough work to keep everybody alive. Mm -hmm. And then we had the Three Mile Island incident. And that, that killed, uh, killed the business. So uh, when the Three Mile Island hit, I'm sitting there saying, uh-oh, what am I going to do? I got a big consulting business that's got no work. So what, I, what we did is I started acquiring uh, land in the Larange Gold Belt. And where is that? Can you place us? In the Saskatchewan. Okay. Out north of Churchill River. It's along the Wadi Lake Road. And so we were able to pick up historic gold currencies that were open, open ground. And I staked a large tract of land, which I'm still involved with some, some of it. And uh, it, changed, it changed me from uranium to gold. And it also, as part of that, my, I wasn't just put into a position where I would have shares in uranium companies, junior uranium companies. I ended up with being a part of the management of a, a gold junior gold company. Did you like that transition to helping to run public companies? Yeah, I think it was it was worthwhile. It was financially worthwhile, and it was it gave me much more freedom to continue doing what I was doing anyway. In a sense that we would we would do research on various commodities, mm -hmm. build up a project, then go and sell it to the big oil companies that were working in the mining business. They also got out of the mining business, most of them. <laughs> so the, then, then I learned about the real people in the world that do the gold business, which are all the junior players in BC, Vancouver. Yep. And most of these, you know, like you'd go into these offices, there was not like now where you got all kinds of junior geologists and senior geologists working in some of these junior companies, mining companies in those days were... Uh, probably a lawyer and a couple promoters, and that's it. That's very, it. very few technical you know, people. The, you know, you'd go and see the <clears> law, <throat> law office, and there'd be fifty or sixty companies listed within the law office. Yeah. And was this the lawyers having their own I side gigs? So. Yeah. You know, they're getting back to that now. I think. I think we are seeing quite a bit of that these days. Um, yeah, they're the ones that are having the big parties at the prospectors. They're the ones that are having the big deals. Yeah. Not 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 the guys with the, with the rocks. So what what okay, what are the skill sets that you had to learn from going from being a geologist and a technical manager and a technically focused manager to working on the corporate and the financial side of this industry? Well, luckily by that time I I was already investing in the junior stock market. Mhm. Mm and because I had big ears, I was getting good tips. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to guys around me. And uh, so I was making a bit of money. So I, you learned that there was money to be made in the junior marketplaces. And uh, you also learned that there was set patterns of promotions and certain people that were very good at taking a stock and running it up. Mm -hmm. But there may be not, no, no, no depth to it. You know, to me, there was 
business money is made in this business only when you make discoveries. So I'm uh, I'm in discovery focused, and I was always interested in finding things for the discovery, not for the uh, market opportunity. But with a good discovery, that happens. My, that yeah, tends to coincide, I suppose. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, and I kind of learned. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is somebody takes a discovery away from you, or you sell it. Why is that? Because you don't get to screw it up, <laughs> <laughs> and you get paid. So you get the upside of the discovery, you know, look, and yeah, not the reality of bringing it forward to uh, to yeah. mining or, or any of the other stages you know, in between. Actually, taking a deposit all the way up into production is a very hard job. And very rarely succeeds. There's very few new players in our industry. When you can sit sit there and say people have created new companies of me of significance, uh, you know I think Sean Rusin and his group, yep, of Cisco, they're one of the few. But there's not that many groups out like that that have been that successful. Well, what do you see the average group doing? Are they recycling old projects, essentially? Well, it gets to be a habit, yeah. You know, there's there's a point of recycling old projects. I mean, you, if you can start with the brown fields, you save yourself a lot of effort. You don't have to find the thing. You just have to change the economics of it. So, I mean, making a discovery, uh, especially green fields discovery, is extremely tough. Um, it's extremely unusual. And there is obviously a, a portion of luck involved in that. Yeah. You've been involved in a lot of different discoveries. What are you doing um, to expose yourself to luck that others in the industry haven't done? Well, I guess I'm willing to <coughs> I'm willing to take a shot at situations that are riskier than a lot of the others in the industry will do. I mean, I, I will let people take a shot at me that are slightly crazy, even though I know better, <laughs> because I, I, don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity. So how do, you, how do you define a risky situation? Is that there isn't the geological evidence there to support a discovery necessarily, and you go or in basically, on... Basically, maybe the people aren't very good. I see. But you like the project and you... you no, know, the project might have some merit. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a hard road because it's, it's a judgment call. You know, I... And you, you quite often look at things and say, okay... It's easy, you know, easy to walk by things. Like one of the discoveries... Uh, we had that I'm particularly satisfied with is the Guacamayo deposit in, in Argentina, which we sold at a very nice price. And uh, the first pass we screwed up. And we basically, I went to Peru and negotiated the deal when Viceroy at the time was almost bankrupt. So were they based in Peru, and then the project was in Argentina? The project was in Argentina. It was owned by Anglo. Okay. We had a, we had a 60-40 joint venture with them, and they basically had a deal that allowed them to put 
their 40% to us for, I think it was $5 million. We had no $5 million. <laughs> so I showed up in Brazil, and Bela Horizonte, which was their base, mm-hmm. sat down with some Brazilian lawyers of theirs, and I had a verbal deal. And But till it actually closed, I never... For $1 million, I bought, I bought them out of, out of uh, Guacamayo. And they were sitting there at the base of... And at that time, we thought we had a discovery, but they were sitting there in, the, in that Guacamayo project, and they had been working it for 20 years. They had a very large permanent camp sitting there that we renovated back to functional. And they looked up the mountain every morning... And up that mountain was a discover as a deposit. <laughs> Nobody ever went up there. It showed up in geochemistry. It showed so, up. In, so they were looking all around that mountain yeah, in different were, areas. And you know they were finding mineralization. They had adits in, in the ground. They had all kinds of things. But they, they were, they were close to it. But the real the real discovery was a Carlin style discovery up the hill. So how did you guys mess it up the first pass? Well, we, we drilled, which. I thought it was logical. We drilled it correctly, more or less. But we stepped out past a certain boundary, 50 meters or 100 meters when it shows up afterwards, and the orbital mineralization disappeared. And that was the end of it for us. I went back and I looked at that hill, which is a 80% outcrop, 90% outcrop. I can't see a defining structure. But <laughs> it's... We went back and re-drilled it again, just a slightly closer spacing, and continued with the uh, discovery. It was one of those things that a mining analyst showed up early stage, Yep. looked at it and said, this could be five million ounces. Well, of course, you're, you're, de- you're dead meat when somebody says that about you, because <laughs> you're not going to meet that obligation, you know, right, right. 12 minutes. So why did this end up being something that you were particularly satisfied with? Because uh, we persisted. And what happened to that project now? It's it's still in production. Uh, the company that had it sold it off for good money recently. And they, they've mined, I think it's over over a few million ounces out of it. Five? Or no, not quite not five. Not quite five. But, yeah. I, you know, I looked at it. You walked up this canyon... And you saw cliffs of breccia, and we knew those breccias ran. Carbonate breccias. They were karsts, paleocarsts. They were, they were carlin-like, but they were in very rugged terrain. You have a reputation for um, never forgetting an outcrop or a rock that people have seen. Well, that used to be pretty good, but it's, an old age is finally catching up. And memory, but I I still remember things that make me money. So, how important is it for a geologist to, I guess, for for two parts? For one, to see a lot of different rocks, a lot of different, a lot of geology in different parts of the world, and two, to build up this sort of mental model so that they can compare and contrast different deposits, uh, different outcrops, different different geological formations uh, in their mind. How, how essential is that for an explorer? Well, I think the more you can see of different things, the better you are at making judgments. 
has that played a role for you in terms of, um, I guess in terms of deciding what is of value and deciding what to focus on? It, it has, you know, I think recent decided decision to refocus a bit more seriously on Saskatchewan is, you know, some people could look at it and say, Ron, you've spent all this time in Saskatchewan. You couldn't find anything that made size. Don't you think you sometimes you should go somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think this is interesting. It's something I want to talk about because you've spent a lot of time in BC, uh, especially the last few years. Mm-hmm. You were chairman of Skeena Resources. Now you've decided to refocus on Mass Gold. Um, you're back in right where you started in Saskatchewan. Why? Okay. Well, I looked at uh, the Skeena operations and situations. We, you know, I think I was pretty instrumental in identifying the targets that they they acquired that are core, which is SK SNP. The SNP I basically had the uh, I had some back end rights to, mm-hmm. but I forego those to Skeena and uh, the GJ project. GJ was ground that I worked in with John Toffin in the 90s with Ascot. And so I've been more or less involved with that particular area off and on for a long time. So, I, you know, I look at those and I... When you decide it's time to play and put something together, we did step one, which is fine, tie up the assets. So the assets got tied up. Step two is actually being able to finance the expiration of those assets. Yep. Now, you've got several different routes to go on that. You know, there's, a, there's only a finite amount of money that junior companies normally capable of raising. And, you, you know, and if you have to raise 20 or $30 million for a junior company, um, you better have something that's, that's a very focused asset. Mm-hmm. And by that, do you mean you need to know that how you deploy that $20 million is going to add real value to... Yeah. I to would look at the project that Skeena has now. There's no reason in the world with the proper programs that SNP shouldn't go back into production at some scale. It's definitely got the potential for a small, high-grade mine. It's not a bad location for infrastructure. It's close to highways. If you put in the road access into the property and a few other things, you you got a you got an operation, and you know a small operation like that that maybe produces fifty to eighty thousand ounces a year of gold is probably not so shabby. No. You know, maybe some companies don't want it, but I wouldn't mind it. SK was a it's a bit of a different story. Like SK. The risk there was, you know, cutting a deal with Barrick was very tough. You know, they did do a deal that I think is workable. The reason that they had to do drilling on both projects, to be honest, is that there was no core left on site because of the short-sightedness of the British Columbia government, the way they operate. They don't, they should be forcing us to keep core shacks and core libraries 
because this is that the cost of a lot of money, and it costs a lot of money, and the taxpayers beneficiary of data. Mm-hmm. And you know they're they're sitting there in northern Canada, especially in northern BC. They're looking for excuses to shut down roads that are no longer active, to sh- take out the bridges, to to sh- shut down airstrips that are no longer potentially active, instead of saying this is part of our infrastructure to keep the, for the next step, the next growth effort. So I, I, I look at this and I think, uh, you know, in a lot of ways I find Saskatchewan politics-wise to be much more well-rounded and I, I trust that I'm not going to get screwed. <laughs> I don't 100% trust BC. Saskatchewan is very well known for uranium mining, of course. Yep. But you're looking for gold. Yeah. What brought you there, and why do you think? Where do you see the potential there, and what are you what are okay. you trying to accomplish with mass? Okay. Well, I look at Saskatchewan has had a low rating for gold and base metals for a long time, and it's it's probably not fair. I mean, the same geology that hosts Saskatchewan hosts Flint Flon. And the Flint Flon camps, no lake camp. I mean, you have, oh, that's a world-class VMS camp. Plus, there's significant gold occurrences through that area. We had, we had politics against us in Saskatchewan during different rushes. It was an extremely remote area in Canada. Until uh, the mid-60s, you couldn't drive to Orange. It was no road. You, you had to go by DC-3 or canoe. <laughs> you know, and that's the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, a, this is a greenstone belt. So where other greenstone belts had it, good road access and ability to work, we didn't. What changed in Saskatchewan is in the mid-60s, a liberal government came in at that time. You know, sometimes these titles change when a liberal, what is a liberal, what's an NDP, and what's a conservative. But it was a right-wing government. And they put in incentives for mineral exploration. So Saskatchewan got a boom cycle. and Big oil companies came in and took huge tracts of land to explore for minerals. That included uranium. that That included everything. You know, that's when I, I was working for an oil company, basically working in the Larange Belt in 65, I think, 64. I was mapping in the same general area as I am now. So this is an area you are intimately familiar with over the course of several decades. That's right. And you, you can look at discoveries. The original Larange Belt discoveries are in the, made in the 20s with people that got there somehow up yeah. the canoe pass, up the yeah. traditional. Uh, it was also explored in the 20s and 30s and 40s by Kaminko. They found a lot of the occurrences that we we have put into production, some have been mined, including CB deposit at Claude and Resources has. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the other deposits now, the Santoy, which are neighboring properties, ones I was involved with. We made those discoveries, but we didn't figure out the geology correctly. 
I mean, SSR, when I look at their information now, I can sit there and say, oh, yeah, that because they're, they're mining those same structures we found uh, maybe 20-some years ago. We, didn't dr we drilled over it, and we drilled under it because we didn't understand the structural controls and the plunge of the mineralization. So what is the goal for mass now, and what should investors be able to expect from you guys over the coming years? Well, the, the goal for mass right now is we're focused on a major structural break mm -hmm. and the peripheries to that major structural break, which is called the McLennan Lake Shear Zone. And that's, it's a, you know, it's a catch word I'm hearing more of it. You can call it orogenic gold. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what orogenic gold is, but I'm pretty sure we got it. <laughs> it's associated with metamorphic structures. Yep. And remobilized gold. And uh, that's what we have. And we have, so we have orogenic gold. We have the evidence that SSR could take clode resources and the CB deposits and put it together and make a significant deposit, which they're, they're mining. So that's the first one. Uh, historically, if you look at the, the age of those rocks, they are what we, I call ephebian or lower protozoic. And though those rocks are the same rough age of rocks and style that you get in Western West Africa. So all the West Africa gold plays are in those age, those age rocks. Not all the green stones over there. Yeah, but they're amphibian age. And would this be the sim similar to what you'd find in Brazil as well, for example? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not, not as much in Brazil, but the the colony, the former colonies to the north there. Okay. Dutch, French, Guiana. Hmm. So, you know, the... And when you look at that same age rocks in North America, the Dakotas, basically you have uh, in the Dakotas, you have the Homestake Mine. Yep. That's in those age rocks. Those aren't Archean rocks. Those are Proterozoic, lower Proterozoic. Those are probably on the same continuation of one of those belts that we're dealing with in Saskatchewan. And so the goal is the goal to make a large-scale gold discovery there. Well, the goal to these? is the yeah. The goal to me is first is I'm not giving up on that. There isn't a larger deposits there to be found. And when I look at it, and you look at the statistics of the discoveries and deposits, you'll find that you'll get a lot of discoveries and deposits that are small, high grade. And what we want with time is the ability to take those deposits. There should always be a few that are large. You know, it's a ratio. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the statistics tend to tell you that that's what you should find. You shouldn't find all small deposits or all big deposits. Right. And so... You know, like if you found one big deposit, you should find a whole bunch of smaller deposits in the area. So would you believe that given the number of small deposits in that region, there is that statistical potential for a yeah. large-scale discovery? Yeah, I, I look at, frankly, if you can, you want to give me a little bit of money and in any one particular area of that, if I can pick a little bit of the geology, we can almost guarantee you we'll find you this gold discovery, a new one. 
And if you had that money to deploy anywhere in the world, that's where this this is where it would be. I think it's one of the from the from my point of view, from from my feeling of safety, of my investment. Yeah, that's a pretty good endorsement. So we've come up on about an hour now, and okay. I want to be cognizant of your time. But you know, one last question, uh, and we spoke about this about the beginning is how the exploration industry has changed over the last several decades, um, the skill sets that people have. If, you know, talking to younger geologists today who are motivated to make a discovery of their own, is there any skill set, is there any mentality that you would say they have to have or actions they need to take to succeed in that realm? You know, the hardest thing I can tell you about our industry is visiting uh, various camps over the last few years it's I mean I got no complaints of people having decent comfort and clean water (laughs) (laughs) you know I can live with it I lived with the other but I'm not recommending it in this day and age but you know but I don't think you need Wi-Fi up in the camps I don't think you need I mean, you know, when you walk into a camp nowadays and you walk into the office tent or something in the middle of the day, it's full of people working on computers. Well, you're, you're in the field. It costs a lot of money to put people in the field. Mm-hmm. They should be out there walking, and breaking rock and mapping. I don't see very much mapping. You know, like the, what you get now is cartoons, not maps. <laughs> And is that a, is that <laughs> does that mean it's more of a theoretical estimate of what's there as well, opposed a, to know, like hard data from the ground? You, know, you when you look at an old map, the outcrops are outlined, the strikes and dips are in place, the structures are identified when they're there or inferred. But you can look at that and know the database and how the quality of data. You look at a modern map, you can't tell how much outcrop this is based on you can't tell very much of anything and uh, you know I'm I'm kind of scared I'd like to give a lot of these younger geologists a test once in a while and say okay here's a bunch of minerals you identify them what do you think the outcome would be I don't I don't think I'd be very pleased so is there any skill sets that you think that if I were hell-bent on making a discovery that I should be developing in myself I think you you know the better basis you have on fundamental geology, the better off you are. Mineralogy, spectrography, structure, stratigraphy—they're all—they're all part of what you should be, have good knowledge on. You know, and you you should be able to rely on that the whole career. And then, of course, spending time in the field. Yeah. Not on the internet. Not on the internet. Is there anything? you think people should know uh, that we haven't covered about what you guys are up to today or, or anything we've talked about today? No, I think uh, I think there was one lesson I learned from the oil companies when I worked with them in Alberta. Is the first thing that the oil companies, there was different kinds of oil companies. The ones I worked for, they were, they were called land companies. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they knew that the first thing they had to do was get the land. They had no asset unless they had land. And that's why I'm very motivated to 
increase our land package even from where it is today, which is, is reasonable. You know, I, I think in, you can't get more than too much land. If, if the geology, you know, if the rocks are right favorable and you got the right, because the guy that's in there in position with the land is going to be able to do deals. You know, that reminds me of a story I read about Robert Friedland, who I guess when they hit at Voises Bay, he said, stake all of Nunavut, not Nunavut, sorry, he said, stake all of Labrador. (laughs) And then I think the geologist went on a pad of paper and said, you know, that's going to cost tens and tens of millions of dollars. But, uh, you know, know, it shows that that reaction is, you know, you don't know the size or the scale or the potential there. And if you don't have the land, you don't really have the options. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, and it's interesting, you know, because Robert's other companies, he's, I've been involved off and on, even though I haven't been there physically for a long time in Cote d'Ivoire and Ivory Coast. And uh, I'm a shareholder, theoretically advisor, but I don't give them any advice, on a company called SAMA. Yep, yeah, they're, yeah. They're in, working in bed with Bob Friedland now, and I'm, I'm waiting because we put that land package together many years ago, <laughs> originally, the first time. And we put it together the second time, and so I got a very small royalty, and I've got a bunch of shares. So what do you think happens there? I, I, think, it, I think it smells close to the discovery. It's getting closer. And once that happens, I guess there's, there's no one else better you want it in the hands of than... Uh, than Bob. Than Robert, yeah. Yeah. Is there a continent you haven't worked Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of. Like I haven't been in. I almost went to Far East Russia a couple of times, but I never did. But I, you know, the geology is fascinating. You may have saved yourself a lot of personal grief, though. Yeah, I probably. Yes, I. I stayed out of the Congo, which I think may have saved me personal grief too. <laughs> yeah, Ron. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Uh, this has been great for me, and, and I've personally learned a lot. Um, if people want to know more about what you're doing, where should they have a look? I assume Mass has a website? We have a website. Great, and I will put all the links to that in the, the notes of this show, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.